2: atlanta this is city lights i'm lois reitzes thank you for listening dj and producer greg gillis better known as girl talk is bringing his energetic live show to the buckhead theater tomorrow december 16th later this hour city lights senior producer kim drobe speaks with girl talk about the artist's unique career path. First, the inimitable John Waters has taken his outrageous humor on tour for the holiday season with a new Christmas show, and Atlanta among the select cities where he'll perform. A John Waters Christmas returns to Variety Playhouse on December 19th, and he is eager, quote, to reinfect the lunatic fringe with holiday jeer. The director, author, and artist, as well as fabulous storyteller, joins us now by phone. John Waters, welcome back to City Lights.
1: Well, it's nice to be back here. Thank you for having me again, just like Christmas. Here we are again. (laughs) Here
2: we are. We last spoke in the spring when your novel Liar Mouth came out, and I have lost count of how many times I've given the book as a gift.
1: Oh, and your friends are still speaking to you?
2: Not only (laughs) speaking to me, but so grateful. I... Just continue to marvel at your wit. Oh, thank
1: you. Did you hear it's been option for me to make a movie of it?
2: I not only heard, I did a Snoopy happy dance. It's
1: exciting. I mean, it's a, people act like I'm starting to shoot tomorrow. It's a long, as you know, from an optioning of a book to the first day of shooting is many hoops that you have to jump through. But uh, the first hoop I'm going to do the day after my tour is over, start writing the script for it. So that's um, a new thing. I've never written a script from a novel I've written. So it's, it's uh, adding another layer.
2: And yet another entry to that already impressive vita. We'll see, <laughs> no doubt. So, how does that Water's wit reveal itself in the holiday spirit with a John Waters Christmas?
1: Well, I think that everybody, even Al Qaeda, knows about Christmas. <laughs> you, you can't escape it. So. Even if you hate it, if you want to destroy it, if you love it, whatever, you can't avoid it. It's coming at you like an out-of-control bulldozer. Some people love it like I do. Some people hate it, and I get why. And some people are mad because they aren't Christians, or why would they have to celebrate it in the first place? I I just like the extreme, so it makes everybody emotional, And, and my show is how to deal with it no matter what kind of person you are, especially this year when everything seems like it's gone wrong. Nothing is right back from COVID. It's still everything. It's still like the end of the world. Nothing's working right. So how do we feel, be optimistic in this? And in the beginning, I I wail and moan like everybody, but then I drink the Kool-Aid, and Mm -hmm. I come back and say, that you know, how we're going to fix everything with lunatic optimism, and that's always the answer.
2: I love it, drinking the eggnog-flavored Kool-Aid. It was actually
1: Flavor-Aid, and you know, today, (laughs) I do get the Jonestown Survivors newsletter, and it's quite interesting, and many of the people, they're very serious about putting the spin on it that I believe is kind of true – it wasn't really suicide because all the armed guards were there. They would have shot him if they didn't do it. So maybe it was murder.
2: Maybe there's a film in the works.
1: Well, they've always they've already made some ludicrous Kiana exploitation movies that were kind of fun. But um, not if you knew the victims. No. And I have been to the unmarked grave in Oakland of all the unclaimed victims of Kiana, and it's kind of moving. I went there one day on Memorial Day and saw a lot of people there whose family died there. So um, it is real. It is beyond a gag. And uh, and the Survival's new- newsletter is quite interesting to
2: read. My goodness. Well, you were talking about Al-Qaeda, and people who aren't Christian being angry about Christmas. I'm very proud of my Jewish heritage, but I always loved Christmas, and I loved the decorations, and I still have a severe case of tree envy. Tree
1: envy. Well— uh, you know, I, I get that, and, you know, I'm not Jewish, but in Hollywood a lot of people talk to me, and you just, do I look Jewish? I always think, I, my Judar is really bad. I never know if people are Jewish or not. And people say, you're kidding. You don't know that, like Jewish people always say to me, you don't know that I'm Jewish? No, I say, how can I tell? So I don't, I don't have good Judar. But at the same thing at Christmas, I should have... Hanukkah envy. Really? And I don't. And believe me, I grew up Catholic where they tell the children that they were born guilty, which is the most evil thing I've ever heard. You tell your children you're the chosen people. That's much more positive.
2: Yeah, but John, look what some of the things they were chosen for. (laughs)
1: Well, I don't know. Most of all the Jewish people I know are intellectuals, and they give money to organizations, and they're funny, and they're smart, and have a good sense of humor. So I don't get anti-Semitism. I never quite got why anybody hated somebody that wasn't like them. I seek out people that aren't like me.
2: (laughs) Well, that's part of what we love about you.
1: I, I make fun of gay rules because we have too many. When did we get so dreary? But, you know, it used to be the perverts hung around together, gay, straight, bi, trans, Everyone Now we fight with each other. It's, we're weakening our brand.
2: You think? Yeah. Even with marriage equality?
1: Well, marriage equality, they just got so straight. You know, the thing <laughs> is, I, I I know some gay people are going through hideous divorces, and I always felt like, see, maybe gay marriage wasn't so great. But no, I am, of course, for gay marriage. But I've never had fun in a wedding in my life, gay or straight. I find them just insufferable. I think you should go get married at Town Hall or with an Elvis imitator or something. But (laughs) the ones where they spend a fortune and they're so serious about it and they play that horrible music and you have to do all this stuff, i go to them. I even was in a TV show called Till Death Do Us Part, where I played the Groom Reaper, (laughs) not the Groom Reaper, it sounds like, but the Groom Reaper where I was, it was based loosely on true stories where the bride or Groom eventually kills one another and I'm at the wedding in the opening and you don't know which one it's going to be. So that was a perfect part for me. I was hoping that people would never invite me to their weddings because they think that they were going to kill each other later, but it didn't affect
2: that. Well, thinking of you as the Groom Reaper reminded me... I think I was looking back at your book on role models, mm-hmm. and you list Ingmar Bergman among Oh, that. I love Ingmar
1: Bergman. <laughs> Still, to this day, the silence and my favorite, the brink of life, three women in the maternity ward, their agony. And um, I'm always an Ingmar Bergman fan, and I never met him. But, um, I saw all his movies, and I used to take divine on l s d to Bergman movies, and he would be so hate him so much when, like in the hour of the wolf, this woman rips her face off and when she's in despair, and he was on acid, and he said, "Please, can't we just see Elizabeth Taylor movies? No, no, I hate this." I loved Ingmar Bergman, right up to the end, right up to the end. And I tried to buy his trash can. They had an auction of his stuff, and his trash can went for something like $20,000. And I wanted it so bad, but somebody outbid me for it, where I could throw my bad ideas in the same trash can where Bergman threw his.
2: And they would come out. As you know, academy, someone else got
1: it. I had to drop out at a certain point. I wasn't going into debt so I could own Ingmar Bergman's trash can.
2: But still, he remains a role model. Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. So I'm back at Christmas and wondering, even with your creativity, how you managed to vary this show from year to year. I
1: rewrite the whole thing. This is almost completely new.
2: Well, that's my job. A
1: lot of people come every year. So there is a a word that is a lazy show business word for doing the same show every year. That's called command performance. Oh. But that just means you didn't think up a new one. And I never understood how people bought comedy records because, once you've heard it. Why would you play the same joke over and over? But I guess it was to play it for other people when they came over. So... That's why I don't let anybody ever record my shows, is because then who's going to come see them if they've already seen it?
2: I don't know. I think there is a place for comedy albums in the joy of revisiting that humor.
1: They were usually dirty comedy albums. The ones that were party records, I called people like uh, Red Fox. and
2: Lenny uh, Bruce.
1: Even dirtier than that, what was her name, Uh, Knockers Up, Rusty Warren that I was thrilled to find out when she died that she was a lesbian. I never knew that. And it was funny because her whole career was kind of very hetero-based talking about men's obsession with women's breasts. And I loved that. I out she was gay. But she was a big one, Knockers Up. She had all those kind of albums. (laughs) But that's when people came over and you took them down to your club cellar and played party records. I I don't think people do that anymore.
2: No, I think you're right. (laughs) We've talked about how your humor is over the top, but not mean-spirited. The fact that there is joy in your scripts, in your books, is why I think your commitment to a recurring Christmas show seems sweet.
1: Well, I make fun of the rules that so called people believe that their outsiders live by. I don't make fun of the rules that we fled. I make fun of the rules that we currently live under. Mm. And the thing is, I always made fun of myself first, and you have to be able to learn to do that if you're going to make fun of others. And you just can't be self righteous. That's the one thing. Well, you always lose because people join the other side. You don't make your enemy feel stupid. You make them feel smart even if they are stupid, and then you can trick them into coming to your side <laughs> by making them laugh. Never make somebody feel stupid. That's when they turn against you forever.
2: Does the holiday hold special childhood memories of growing up in Baltimore?
1: Yes, I had a functional Christmas, but yet I have the famous scene in one of my movies where the Christmas tree falls over on somebody, and it did fall over on my grandmother, and I was excited when it happened. (laughs) I mean, she didn't go to the hospital (laughs) or anything, and in my movie, somebody shoves their mother under because she doesn't get the cha-cha heel she wants for Christmas. But I took something that happened for real and, of course, exaggerated it for humor. And my grandmother always thought it was hilarious that I used it. She knew later but then people all around the country would tell me hideous stories about the Christmas tree falling over. It happens really a lot, but it's always two things involved, a dog and liquor. That is what causes Christmas trees. But I tell people that you should all be with your family and maybe smoke a joint now that it's legal. And then right when you open your biggest present, rig it and the tree falls over on your, your whole family and everybody screams.
2: <laughs> For then joy. Then put it all away
1: instantly that day and... Start thinking about Valentine's
2: Day. Just like the retail stores.
1: Yes.
2: (laughs) If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and John Waters is on the phone with us from his home in Baltimore. The artist, director, and author is bringing his Christmas show to Variety Playhouse on Monday, December 19th. I love thinking about how you might decorate your house at Christmas. Do you hang flamingo ornaments or? Cat- no, I
1: have one that someone did give me. That I have no other flamingos in my house. I OD'd on flamingos. But this one is, it goes rocks back and forth, and it's a Christmas one. I do have that. I have the electric chair from Female Trouble that is our tree <laughs> that we decorate every year. But I have traditional styled Christmas decorations, but with weird things on them. Like, I have a lot of divine, a lot of things fans made me, really good ones. Like, there's a. I have one Christmas statue of Divine knocking over the tree, and it blinks and everything.
2: How I have, meta!
1: Yeah, I have like lots of original art that people have done. That's weird Christmas scenes from my movies, or or hideous little Christmas balls. I have like Jeff Jeff Striker porno Christmas balls. I have Thomas Finland Christmas balls. I have all traditional kind of decorations, but spins on it i have a great aretha franklin pillow that says merry christmas god knows where that came from a good thrift shop
2: what about cans of hairspray on your tree I don't know
1: if I have them. I've seen them though. now. I think, I think maybe when Hairspray the Musical became, they might have even marketed them. We had a brand of Hairspray that was Aquanatic. My famous. mother used that. But listen, they wouldn't let me use it when we made Hairspray, when we asked. So then they came around and wanted to be in Hairspray the Musical, and we said no. <laughs> ah,
2: see what being mean gets you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would you share some other memorable stories of Christmas's past without so, the ghost.
1: I used to have a party every year. The theme was everybody drew somebody's name, and you had to give them the present they would hate the most. And it's kind of fun. And somebody gave me the soundtrack to all the Rocky movie albums. <laughs> so, um, And I threw them out the window, which was irresponsible because I lived on the seventh floor. And just think if there were any carolers below that got hit in the head with a Rocky soundtrack. But, um, so I think that's a good theme to have. And also another good thing is to hang things on your trees that you wouldn't usually like Narcon and Plan B and, and, I don't know, meat. Just have a whole Christmas tree that meat is hanging on it. I don't know. I think you can have a theme tree that would be kind of counterculture in a new way.
2: That meat tree sort of Lady Gaga
1: Yeah. Or just a dead tree. There's been a lot of horrible forest fires this year. Go get one of those burned up trees and put them in your house to
2: give tribute to what's gone. Okay. Homemade versus store-bought, practical versus whimsical what are your thoughts about Christmas shopping?
1: Well, on all those words you said, say each one whimsical. If there is anything I hate, is whimsical. <laughs> Please don't ever give me a whimsical gift. Practical? No, that's when you put in your children's stocking deodorant and shaving cream. No, that means your children are going to rebel really quickly if you do that. And then what were the other one? Homemade is always good. good. Homemade is good, but what's best? is if you found something really cheap that the person would really love because it meant that you spent hours for looking through thrift shops and everything. And to give something somebody, somebody something that really costs a lot of money is kind of in bad taste, I think, because it seems like you're trying to buy their love at Christmas. Oh.
2: Good point.
1: And gift cards means you think the person's stupid that they have no interest. You're <laughs> stupid. That's what it means.
2: Same with Cash. Unless
1: they're in prison, then that's a very nice thing to give.
2: And you have devoted a fair amount of time to prison, in fact.
1: Well, prison has so many rules. I, mean, I love to give books for Christmas, but many prisons you cannot give hardbacks. You can only give paperbacks. Often it has to come directly from the bookstore and not from you. So there's lots of ways you can figure, but it was hard because my book isn't in-paperback till next May, so I had to get galleys to send them. You know, they're sort of soft version, which is harder because obviously bookstores don't carry galleys. <laughs> but I know people that own bookstores, so I, I conspired to send a legal book to people in
2: prison. Well, when we spoke in the spring, you mentioned that you would have been a criminal defense lawyer yes. if, if you hadn't become. Or a shrink. Or a shrink.
1: Okay. Especially these days. They don't take insurance and they're 250 an hour.
2: Oh, up. Uh, a little higher. Yeah,
1: they can be. I'm in Baltimore, remember.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, the bargains. But they're
1: worth it. I believe a good drink's definitely worth it. And I have my favorite Kleenex box. I love the Freud Museum. I always go to it. I went to the one in Vienna.
2: We did, and, too.
1: And they have, like, Kleenex boxes where you can put a box of Kleenex in, but it's Freud's rugs. Oh, it's great. Right. I bought them for every room I have. So that's a great gift. You can read his books. They are so entertaining, I think, especially the one. My favorite is Dora, Portrait of an Asteric, or I also like The Wolf Man. That's a really good one. The Psychotic, Dr. Schwaber. I would I would recommend any of those three case histories for a very well-written and interesting psychological profile.
2: Well, once again, you're intellect is on full display, because I think the prize he won was actually in literature. It was Was actually for writing. It was not for his science.
1: Huh. I wonder which book. I like some of them jokes in the subconscious. Like every time you told a joke, he would analyze it. Oh, he was so good. Let me say, he was wrong about a few things, but he was right about really a lot and really radical and really amazing. He thought all that up. You know, he thought really a lot up.
2: True. And this is why they have the word genius. And I think yeah. a lot of people might consider your comedy. Well,
1: that that's very so you know, I, I never got the MacArthur Award. But here's the thing, my friend got it, he said all people say to him is say, Hey genius, fix my phone. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I can imagine how many people agree with me that we're very grateful you did not become a shrink or a criminal defense lawyer. <laughs> you turned out just the way you should. Oh,
1: that's very sweet. Thank you very much.
2: Director, author, and artist John Waters. He joined us via telephone from his Baltimore home. A John Waters Christmas is Monday, December 19th at the Variety Playhouse. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash city lights in a moment city lights senior producer kim drobes catches up with dj and producer greg gillis better known as girl talk amplifying atlanta this is w-a-b-e This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. DJ and producer Greg Gillis, better known as Girl Talk, is bringing his energetic live show to the Buckhead Theater tomorrow, December 16th, when City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes recently caught up with the artist she provided
3: details on girl talk's unique career path dj and producer greg gillis better known as girl talk took the world by storm in the early 2000s with his unique remixed mashup songs along the way he developed a love for creating sample based beats and over the last decade he's become a notable hip-hop producer in april he released full court press a collaborative album with Wiz Khalifa, Big Crit, and Smoke Dizza. Girl Talk is bringing his legendary live show to the Buckhead Theater tomorrow, December 16th, and the artist joins me now via Zoom. Greg Gillis, welcome to City Lights.
0: Hey, how's it going?
3: Very well. Very happy to have you here, and I'm anxious to discuss tomorrow's live show, but let's start with a bit of background for those of us that are unfamiliar with your work. You were ahead of the pack as a mashup artist, and as such, you seemingly took a lot of heat for your use of samples. In 2008, a writer at New York Times Magazine called your music a lawsuit waiting to happen, but in fact, no lawsuits ever materialized. (laughs) Do you have any thoughts as to why?
0: Yeah, he was wrong. Let it be known. No doubt. (laughs) (laughs) Uh... You know, it, it's hard to say, you know, I doing the music we do, we always put out, you know, it's, it's a bunch of uncleared samples. And me and the label that puts it out, it's a label called Illegal Art that kind of specializes in sample based music. Um, we've always thought that the music should qualify under fair use in United States copyright law and, you know, has to hit certain standards, whether it's, you know, for... You know, if it doesn't uh, conflict with, you know, it doesn't rival sales for the thing you're sampling, if it doesn't take away from that, or if you're doing it for artistic or educational purposes or parody, there's a bunch of different reasons why it could qualify under fair use. So we always believe that it should. And, um, you know, it's a it's an interesting case because with an album like Night Ripper or Feed the Animals or All Day, those albums from the late 2000s, um, you know, it would just would be, you know, financially for us impossible to put out. I, I, don't, I can't really put a figure on how much it would cost to clear all those samples, even if you wanted sure. to. So then it kind of raises the question of, you know, should this music not exist at all? Like, should it be illegal for it to exist? And we always thought that it shouldn't. And I think we, uh, you know, me and, and the label always kind of spoke out about these issues. And I think because of that, it may have helped that, you know, I, I really don't think that, you know, the people were sampling ever saw it as competition to their sales. If anything, you know, I would always hear from people at shows or people online of being turned on to certain artists through the work that I do. Um, so yeah, it's 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 an impossible question as to like why there potentially wasn't legal work, but I, I always believe that there shouldn't be and I was happy that there wasn't. And, um, I think, you know, maybe cause we were kind of so outspoken about it too. I, I don't know if people necessarily wanted to go down that road with us. Like it would be something where we would definitely fight it and raise to, you know, the issues that we believe in.
3: Yeah. And you normalized the practice for the rest of the industry and it just became incredibly common. And I feel like the concept of suing someone over this just went away.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting now just because the way you consume music is differently because back then it's like, okay, you know, that was – it was relatively new just to have things on the internet, but it was still kind of the old model at least in the mid-2000s of you, people still bought, you know, CDs to some degree. I guess it was kind of starting to fade out around that time. So now, you know, especially when you look on social media or all the new platforms like TikTok, it's just so much remix-based music and art it's like if you go on there it's like there's so many mashups or songs sped up slowed down or whatever and i think you know it it just makes sense to me it's just like as people have the tools to uh, take music they like and remix it and do whatever they want with it it makes sense that everyone would be doing that in, in 2022 so now it's, it's out there a lot, but it's also like that. a lot of that stuff isn't necessarily on the big platforms like Spotify and Apple Music. So in certain ways, it's become normalized, but in other ways, it's like it's also there still is kind of a hard line between, you know, everyone is remixing and mashing up and taking other people's music and doing stuff with it, but it's still, you know, a hard line with, you know, whether you're actually releasing that on these traditional platforms. But, you know, a lot of music and things get famous on TikTok, and there's certain mashups i, I, I rel- Relatively recent phenomenon that I've noticed is certain remixes and mashups getting big on TikTok and then the original artists then reaching out to those people who remixed it and then doing official releases of that. So I think that's kind of what's happening Mm. now. But it's always I I feel like the landscape is always changing with this sort of stuff with how people are actually consuming the music, whether they're, you know, used to be downloading or buying a CD or streaming. And I'm sure there'll be something new in 10 years.
3: For sure. You know, I really enjoyed your recent remix of Taylor Swift's Antihero. And when listening to it online, the very first comment I saw is, why is this not on Spotify?
0: (laughs) Right. Right. And, uh, you know, we we had debated that, too. Like, you know, me with some of the people on my team, just whether should we just throw this up there and see what happens? You know, do we believe this should qualify under fair use? Is, Is this different than my previous work, which is you know, primarily based on a lot of shorter samples and a, a dense collage, mm-hmm. like hundreds of things. So all those things were brought up and, um, you know, the idea was floated and we considered it and it, and it is, you know, and I get it. Like I use Spotify at home and I use streaming services and it's, it's just very convenient and easy. Um, but it is when you take a step back, kind of bizarre, just the hold that those companies have on listeners, just because it's like the songs you can listen to it on YouTube, but that's, you know, makes things complicated for people who have a streaming service set up to their home stereo system that only has spotify on it so that's kind of the unfortunate thing about now whereas in the mid to late 2000s when i was doing those mashup albums you know like we were saying it if it existed in mp3 that was as official as anything because people were mm-hmm. act- actually actively downloading. so if you just upload something to a website and mp3 that's as an official release as any major label thing. Whereas now, yeah, it's like for tons of people, it's if it's not on Spotify, then it basically doesn't exist. And uh, right. that's, that's unfortunate, because, you know, with things like the Taylor Swift remix, we want to get it out to the largest audience possible. But it's like, there is this huge kind of like, you know, hurdle, if it's not, you know, if you don't want to take the risk and, and throw it up on Spotify.
3: Yeah. So what inspired you to create that particular mix of Taylor Swift's antihero? You know, I was I was always very
0: particular about what I put out in, in terms of just especially with the mashup thing. I think going back to those early albums, I, I like putting out these whole projects like every couple years and, and I kind of stopped doing that after all day in 2010. But then like a couple years ago, I started sharing little things I'm working because I'm always working on new remixes and mashups, and usually people will not hear them outside of my shows. And I shared a couple things, you know, semi recently, and, and it, you know, it just it felt liberating. Like, why should I hold these things back? So I did a, a Beyonce remix earlier this year that I shared, and people like that. And then, um, and that was kind of like a big deal for me just to throw something out there like that, just because I hadn't really done that. And then anytime there's new music coming out that I like, I'm basically sitting at home and trying to come up with something for it, specifically for the show. So I was working on that Taylor Swift song for show material. And then um, I I had two different ideas and I was playing it for some people and you know all of a sudden that idea with the, the diana ross one, it just really clicked to me and i was like oh this feels kind of you know interesting I always feel like it's a great sign when doing this sort of work. If you listen to yours a few times, and then all of a sudden when you listen to the original, the original sounds like a remix to you. When yours starts sounding like more natural, that's the sign that you know something's happening here. Um, so that it kind of hit, and then you know I'm always like a little apprehensive or very critical of myself. So I, I like shared it with some people, and everyone was like, "Oh, you got to put this out." So. I was like, yeah, I guess I should just put this out. And then I did and uh, people took to it. So it was good, you know, and uh, like I said, it's just fun for me personally, just to kind of break some of those, these rules I used to have in my head of how I'm supposed to release things or what it should be. And just, um, you know, when you're making something at home and you like it, like, why not just throw it out there to the world?
3: Oh, for sure. So let's talk about Full Court Press for a second, your collaborative album with Wiz Khalifa, Big Crit and Smoke Dizza. Critics are calling y'all a super group. That's got to feel pretty good. (laughs) How did your relationship with these three big talents begin?
0: Uh, So I'm from Pittsburgh and Wiz Khalifa is also from Pittsburgh. So we met um, maybe 2006, probably around 15 years ago and we uh you know we both met before either of our projects really took off and i went to see him at a club show and i was kind of following what he was doing and then we stayed in contact over the years and we ended up playing a few shows together and the girl talk thing kind of took off a little before he did so there was a couple years there where i had some shows that i i helped him on uh one in pittsburgh and one in brooklyn and a couple of those and then all of a sudden in 2010, he skyrocketed with with black and yellow and kind of like turned into a, you know, like a pop person, you know, just fully, you know, every pop culture, like everyone kind of knowing who he is. But we stayed in contact, just kind of running into each other at festivals or at the airport. And he was always cool. So we, um, we started planning on doing some music together, maybe in 2017, we started getting the studio together and at, around the same time, I was also working with Big Crit and. Smoke Dizza, all independently, just all artists that I'm a fan of. I've known Crit for ten years, and I met Smoke Dizza around 2017. So, the plan at that point was to basically do three individual projects with each of them. And as I was working on it, they all have a history together, and they all kind of came out at a certain era. Um, you know, they around you know the kind of late 2000s, early 2010s. And, um, you know, they played shows and toured and they just have this kind of shared history. So I started getting each of them on each other's songs. So I, I like had a, mm. a Wiz Khalifa song and I had a session with Big Crit. It was just me and Crit. but I got Crit on one of the Wiz songs. And then I had a session with Smoke Dizza and I got him on one of the Big Crit songs. So as I was sitting at home, I, I think the way I'm always putting together music, I'm kind of trying to trim anything that's unnecessary just you know just really stick to what i'm I'm loving and as i was listening to that music together we had a lot of different stuff and i kind of liked it it worked together like all of their material and I, and I knew their shared history so i thought it'd be cool if we could get together all of us but i didn't think that would actually be possible because it's hard <laughs> enough just to link up with anybody and they all have
3: different right. management
0: labels and everything but we reached out and it happened. So we spent three days with all of us together in a room and it was just really fun out of, you know, the past 10 years of me kind of doing production work with other people. This was one of the best sessions I've ever been a part of just in terms of the vibe. And, you know, like I said, since they all go back with each other, just kind of catching up and it was just fun. It didn't feel like work or anything. And the music came together pretty like effortlessly in the studio. And then after that, you know, I had some time to go home and they all gave me full reign to kind of do whatever I wanted with it, which was great. Cause I love to take the material kind of like I do with the, the mashup mixes and all of that sort of stuff and, and piece it apart and cut it up. So I went home and really, you know, made it, try to work together and and you know there are some bits and pieces on there where it's like the beat that they're rapping on is not not what they wrapped on in the studio or i combine certain songs together and things like that and you know i think when you hear the project i hope you don't hear any of that it should just sound seamless but um yeah i was able to go home and really kind of figure out the angle of like what this project should sound like
3: well, uh, now you're ready anything that you want you can get it got your own song you never gotta settle want the boss, not the man in the middle not a little, it's kind of simple see guy in low, pull him in, I'm kind of I'll send a rose, rush away to come and get you, I'm with my homeboys we just at the venue, what's your favorite restaurant that you have been to, order anything you want off the menu I got room in the back, bring your friend too you will need me, me or her, what you into all the time, say I'm on your mental, you keep telling me about what you went through, don't gotta worry about me I'm not the issue, I will take care of your heart, I'll be gentle, you say
0: And then we had a couple years of really me fiddling with it and and then recording some stuff over email with them. And then uh, we finally got it to come together uh, this year.
3: So you're saying then that your heaviest lift is definitely coming after you guys get out of the studio.
0: Yeah, this I mean, sometimes when I'm in the studio with artists, the way it normally goes for me is that you'll play some beats and they'll pick one out. Um, sometimes you might play them on like, you know, 30 or 50 beats until they find one that they really love. These sessions were great because basically everything I put on, they recorded on, which is the way I wish mm. it was. Cause I have my list of what I think the best material is for them. And they were all down to just get on those beats. So in the studio, yeah, I'm not doing too much, like a suggestion here or there. I basically am playing the music. And then once everyone agrees to record on it, we will like listen to that beat for however long. And then the song kind of organically comes together. People decide who's going to be on it, what order, that sort of thing. And then definitely kind of like you're saying, when I go home, then it turns into my normal workflow of I'm going to really slice everything up and and just try out many different ideas. And sometimes the original way they record the song might be the best to me, but I might spend you know a week trying out different things or beat changes or different tempos or whatever. But yeah, I think in general, this album, I I think a lot of, you know, what was recorded in the studio turned out great. So it was like, that's always the best because I have a tendency to want to remix it or want to change it up. But, you know, like I was (laughs) saying, sometimes what happened there was the best thing. and You can try a million different ideas, but what happened in the studio sounds the best.
3: So at this point in your artistic career, do you have a preference creating mashups versus originals? Um, They're
0: both fun. I've spent so many years doing the mashups and remixes it's just me alone it's very meticulous <laughs> you know mm-hmm. it's very, just me sitting in a desk for hours and in the studio it is a social thing it's fun and like you know when you can put like for example full court press after some of those songs after the first song we recorded was put you on that came out they probably finished in like you know an hour tops and uh, when it was it was just like the beat went on everyone recorded their stuff and it just kind of the order that they is on that they're on the song that's how they recorded it
2: I put you on for real. Right. I'm on the bomb it's kill. I'm uh. on for real. Uh. I hit the farm the bill, right. I got a monster deal.
0: Really?
2: Might have a hundred. I might get on front mm. of them. I might get them gone, but still. Watch out farm foreign pill. I put you on for real. Right. This all in the flip. Uh. VBS in my drip. Uh. Shout out Ronnie, my mans, Get it popping and kick. It's professional hustling. You dudes not in discussion. Just me, Cameron, and Justin. This ain't amateur stuff. <clears throat> Bringing that grid up, born that grid up.
0: And um, and after it's over, you know, they play it back and then everyone's kind of like celebrating the song. You, know, you listen to it on high volume, everyone's drinking, smoking, whatever. It's like a celebration. It's fun, which is the exact opposite of the way it is for me at home when I'm like making the Taylor Swift remix, where I'm just like sitting down and just, you know, going over every little detail and being self-critical about every little thing. So kind of working with other people, it's fun. It's It's just a different sort of thing. So... Um. yeah, it's hard to compare the two. I I think in recent years, I've definitely enjoyed the collaboration work more, which is why I think I've been kind of leaning towards it. But yeah, it's like when I make something like the Taylor Swift Remix, that feels great in a different way. You know, that that just kind of goes back to, you know, I've been doing that for 20 years now, which is crazy. So it's just something I'm very kind of used to.
3: Well, that makes perfect sense. And something you haven't done in a while is tour. And I know you were supposed to start back in 2020 and then COVID. It finally kicked off, I think, in March of this year with a break over the summer. And have you been back on the road since September? So we did
0: a run in the spring. Um... And, and before 2020, I never technically stopped playing shows completely, but it was definitely sparse. It'd be like festival appearances here and there. So I hadn't done like a full tour in a long time. And then um, the, when we started, we when we did the 2020 tour this year, that was in March and April. We did like a full month. You know, it was crazy, kind of being back out there, and it was something I used to do all the time. And you know, I toured with a lot of close friends of mine, help out with the show, So just kind of being on the road, it's just something I hadn't experienced in a while. And the shows were great. You know, I think for, I hadn't really been out of the house doing much, like a lot of people. So (laughs) just hearing from people and fans and everyone being like, I haven't left the house in two years and now I'm here. Um, It it felt amazing. So after those runs, I was like, I think we should keep this going. So then after that, we booked these dates um, that we're doing now. And then the um, Atlanta show will be the second to last show.
3: Wow. So for those who don't know, your live shows have a reputation as being chaotically joyful, and there was a time that multitudes of fans would end up on stage dancing with you, which created a really great house party energy. What does a 2022 girl talk show look like? <laughs>
0: I feel it's funny. It's it's basically like an evolved version of that. And I never really officially know exactly when the people on stage sing started or how. Like, I, <laughs> I know, like, I used to, like, way before things like got big, I would play at house parties occasionally, and kind of just play in the middle of the floor where you're surrounded by people. And then there's an era where I had, like, you know, some DIY choreographed dance things happening with some friends on <laughs> stage. And then at some point, um, you know, people start getting on stage. And I, I don't really still like I don't really remember how it became well known. Like, it, like photos got out and then it just became the thing at every show that people would jump up there. And um, so for a while, I had a, a rule that we would just only play venues that would allow no barricade. Um, so you, it, so it would just be le- that they would allow it to be a free for all. And that was fun until it just kind of grew to the point where it was too chaotic like so many shows were ending prematurely or you know it was borderline like you know unsafe for people it was just it was a little out of control so in 2011 um, I did a tour and that was the first tour where we actually had a barricade and then we had it and along with that I, I started having more production with the show you know in terms of lights and things happening on stage to kind of balance that out but we would still have people on stage. We would just basically grab them right before the show and have like a limited number. So it wasn't a free for all. So that is still how we do it. Um, you know, people still jump up there occasionally and we, you know, welcome that to some degree. You know, I can't say security might kick you out. They might not, but uh, yeah. So I, I never wanted it to be like this thing where it's like VIPs or anything like that. I just want it to be, you know, people who were there in the front row and enthusiastic and just people who got up there. So the show's kind of still the same. It just is, you know, I I think some of the audience now has aged with me. Like I said, that was like 15 years ago. So a lot of people are like, you know, in college or now in their 30s. And it still kind of has a similar vibe, just, you know, a, a little older. And there's still, you know, some degree of young people coming out and then Older people—it's a wide mix um, of things happening. But yeah, I think with the show, I just we still try to tap into a similar energy and just you know go a hundred percent from start to finish. And um, you know, even with the stuff like Full Court Press or even the uh, T- Taylor Swift remix, it's like trying to you know make sure work that material into the show in a way that makes sense. So it's like I fully understand that kind of the energy and the vibe of Full Court Press is kind of different than my previous album. So. I like to remix that material and make sure it makes sense, the energy. And and I think it kind of flies by and seamlessly kind of works into the the feeling of the show.
3: So that music is incorporated into the new shows.
0: Yes. Yeah. I think if you didn't know the album super well, you probably wouldn't notice um, just because it's like remixed and mashed up. There's a couple things from full court press i play kind of straight up occasionally but yeah for the most part it's it's basically like i treat that like any other song i would sample where i'm taking it and you know cutting it up and remixing it and uh yeah it's like the show it's like it's a battle in just maintaining this high level of energy for the entire thing so it's like any little dip i feel like is it doesn't work you know you just don't want to lose them so when I incorporate the new stuff, I want to make sure it kind of, uh, yeah, it works with the energy of the show.
3: Well, thinking back to when it was a little more of a, a free for all, and I know it's always been very focused on people who are super into it, fans in the front row. But is it true that at a festival in maybe 2014, Paul McCartney <laughs> ended up dancing on stage with you? Yeah, it was. We
0: were so we were given this probably like the biggest spot I've ever had at a festival. Um, where I, I've done Coach Hill a few times, but this year I was playing on the main stage right before Outcast. And mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, they played a lot of shows that summer, but this was the first of their like reunion shows. So it felt like a huge deal at the time. Um, I'm a huge Outcast fan. It was, you know, absolutely an, an honor to have the spot. Um, so we had some guests come out, and uh, I think based on this, the time slot and everything, uh, so d- there's two different weekends. So we had like, uh, Busta Rhymes, Juicy J, Waka Flocka, Tyga, E-40, Too Short, Freeway, a bunch of different guests each week, which is that was like a huge deal for me to begin with. And then I just think just kind of being on the main stage and just, you know, with the, that moment, um, there was a lot of people there and famous people kind of hang out at Coachella. So I had no idea Paul McCartney was there. <laughs> and um, so And I didn't even notice him while I was playing. I just kind of went through it. And after the show, um, there was this kind of like a lot going on, but I just like looked at my phone and everyone was like, there's a live stream. So like my parents and friends and family were like, was Paul McCartney on the stage? Everyone was like, was Paul McCartney on the stage? So apparently he was hanging out and he saw kind of everyone dancing on stage and he wanted to get into it. And he went up there and, and he did his thing.
3: That's fantastic. Well, I'd love to end with a question you've probably gotten a ton. But for our audience, when did you start taking on the moniker Girl Talk and why? Uh, I started in 2000.
0: Uh, I mean, Girl Talk, it's, you know, it's, it's a pop culture reference. There's like the board game, there's... Stephanie Tanner's band in Full House. It's it's you know, the phrase is thrown out around a lot. You know, somehow it's kind of evolved to what it is, and I'm still talking about it now.
2: DJ and producer Greg Gillis, better known as Girl Talk, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. Girl Talk performs at the Buckhead Theater tomorrow, December 16th. And his new collaborative album is Full Court Press. More information is on our website, wabe.org City citylights. If this conversation with Girl Talk sparked your musical interest, stick around. Coming up, we'll discuss the Museum of Design Atlanta's new class, The Art of Sampling 101, Amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Right before the break. City Lights senior producer Kim Drobe spoke with Greg Gillis, the artist better known as Girl Talk. Gillis has made a career of using samples in mashup songs and creating sample beats for his work as a hip-hop producer. If you are interested in learning to develop this style of music, you are in luck. As part of the current exhibition, Close to the Edge, The Birth of Hip-Hop Architecture at the Museum of Design Atlanta, Moda is presenting The Art of Sampling 101. Sound designer Travis Yargans will teach this hands-on class on January 11th. Thomas Hayes the exhibition manager and educator at Moda, explains the definition of sampling in music.
3: Sampling in music involves taking a section of audio from another source, say an existing
2: song, and then reworking it into the creation of a new track. Participants in this seminar will learn about the history of sampling and some of the most famous samples used in music. They'll also get a crash course in how to sample music and a chance to try it out themselves. Additionally, participants will explore the legal issues around the art form and learn the basic equipment needed to produce sample beats. More information about The Art of Sampling 101 is on MODA's website, museumofdesign.org. You've been listening to City Lights. Our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., co-authors Julianne Cooper and Wendy Brandt tell us about their new children's book, Hanukkah Veronica, the Mitzvah Fairy. Plus, we'll hear about Liberation Energy, now screening at Core Dance Studio. If you miss part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with John Waters, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights Senior Producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Wright's do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta